0: This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor of
2: Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week, we discuss a
0: surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week, it's toilets. Which, of course, is all about high politics in the reign of Henry VIII. Quite literally, history from the bottom up. Let's mm, or-
2: see what you've done there. You can <laughs> see you can see what I've done,
0: or. Oh we will learn about the history of gong farmers. These are people who in Tudor times were paid to dig out and clean up human excrement out of the privies or cesspools used by ordinary Tudor citizens.
2: Wow. Well, for me, it's all about the history of comedy. Um, And if you'd like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow
0: me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. We are proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other great shows coming soon and you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months show notes
2: video clips photos of everything we discuss and much much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the
0: itch, urine, or the elephant. The itch, fantastic. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the knife is all to do with diplomacy, Uh. the history of everyday living, or that the history of fairies is, in fact, all to do with the Reformation. But then, frankly, everything in one way or another (laughs) always comes back to the history of the Reformation, at least for me. And fairies. And And, (laughs) It
2: works both ways. And and elves. (laughs) Uh, The man sitting opposite me, he's the princess
0: of the previous. It's James Daybell. (laughs) Well, if I am the princess of the previous, the man sitting opposite me must be the chaperone of chronology. It is (laughs) Dr Sam Willis. Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly
2: highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us takes the lead and this week
0: it's James's turn. What are we doing this week James? Toilets. Ah, I have toilets for you Sam. This is something I have wanted to do for a long (laughs) long time. I've been interested in the history of toilets since being an undergraduate at university. Right how did that manifest itself? Uh, You will find out in a moment. (laughs) You will find out in a moment but before we get there Let's talk about the history of toilets. When I say the history of toilets, what does that mean to you? What do you think of? Well, as
2: a primarily a maritime historian, my immediate thoughts are to do with toilets on ships, particularly warships, where the captain or flag officer would have a toilet, the sailing master would have a toilet, and there would be two for the other 896 people on board. And that's all to do with physical geography of ships. That's really interesting. So the toilets would always be at the bows of the ship, mm. called the heads. So I'd think about that, about the smell, about waste. as one of the reasons that the the toilets were actually the bowels of the ship, because the waves wash wash the ship clean, so it's all to do with cleanliness. Privacy Privacy. always kind
0: of... The privy. Ah. The privy. Mm. The privy toilet. What is the most private room within the house? Yeah. The airing yes. cupboard. The air, probably the, probably the, probably in a modern house, Is probably it? the airing cupboard. Yes, I see what you're getting there. If you have if you have an airing cupboard. Yes, we don't have an airing cupboard. No,
2: there's privacy, and I suppose there's um, Elvis death on the toilet.
0: Yes, mm. it's a yes. Lo-
2: lonely way to go. That was constipation w- and, mm. and and
0: fear of death on yes. the toilet. Yes, enemas. <laughs> oh, the history God. of enemas. Okay, so where are you going with this? Where am I going with this? Well, I mean, I'm going to start with this. What have we got there? Let me get this picture up for you.
2: Describe that. That is a velvet-lined box with a hole in the top with the lids up, and then it's clearly a toilet that you can sit on, but it's the fanciest toilet I've ever seen. It's like a toilet for a fairy tale princess. It is. is. It's kind of dark red or pink
0: and very plush. And there are handles on either side, so it could be carried around. But also, interestingly, it could be locked. Ah, you know, so that nobody else could use it. So this is a close stool. This is a portable toilet, and this one comes here from Hampton Court, and they've dated it around 1650. So it's mid 17th century. And this is the kind of toilet that Henry VIII might have used. This is a slightly later. Version. So, what I'm going to start with is the toilet in the Tudor period is intimately linked to politics. And this is David Starkey's idea about, I suppose, his toilet paper view of Henry VIII and it right. all links to a character called the groom of the stool. Okay. And the groom of the stool is an honorific court position, one of the leading positions, and this is literally the person who would have accompanied Henry VIII to the toilet. And Starkey's argument Why about did he need accompaniment? I mean, he needed accompaniment everywhere. He would have had somebody who would have put him on his horse. You know, it's about having those close body servants. This is a, These I are mean, structures. He, he needed to be seen to have accompaniments. He needed to be seen. It was to do with his power, his status. We have the development of the importance of the privy chamber, which is sort of inner living quarters. And the idea is that those who are close to the king are powerful. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is essentially, you know, a series of quarters Close to the monarch, who are able to have influence, they are able to, you know, enrich themselves. If you look at somebody like William Brayton and you look at his his accounts, you know, throughout this period when he is the groom of the stool, he is he's acquiring vast tracts of land. So this is literally history from the bottom upwards. Mm. You know, this is about close political contact and alliances. Although I want to take us in another direction. While we have these sort of elaborate, highly sort of ornate circumstances for Henry VIII going to the toilet, it was not like that for other members of Hampton Court. And recent, a few years ago, they reconstructed the sort of um, toilet facilities at Hampton Court, what is called the Great House of Easement, Hmm. which is where other courtiers would have gone. And this was nothing like the same sort of private... Toilet facilities that Henry VIII would have had. You know, what you've got there is essentially communal, rather smelly toilet facilities. You know, rather like if you've ever been camping where there are no toilets and you have a long drop toilet. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that. And you imagine sort of four guys sitting next door to each other on a plank. After several weeks at court, the hole below would be absolutely full. And this is where the gong farmer or the gong scouring. I parenting. want to be a gong farmer. Maybe I won't want to be a gong you won't want to. You won't want to be a gong farmer. But okay. the word gong is related to a privy, so to the toilet, but also to the contents. Right. And these were people who in Tudor times were basically paid to clear out, so literally dig out, scoop out and get rid of oh. the human excrement and waste that filled up in these privies. Latrine duty, latrine Latrine
2: duty, yeah. basically. That reminds me very much of the clothes store which you showed us, that, that photograph. Yeah. It's <laughs> almost an exact of something I've seen in the Grand Canyon. Hmm. So it's a protected national park, And everyone's camping, you know, there are no cabins to stay in, everyone camps on the beaches. Yeah. And there are only kind of certain safe locations where you can camp. And you've got to do something with the human waste. Yeah. As you travel down the Grand Canyon with a big group, you have boxes like that, which you set up behind a rock a, you know, respectable distance away from the tents. Yeah. And everyone goes to the loo on those. But they're square, they've got handles, they've got a lid. Very, very similar. But what's fascinating about it is once the legal requirements to actually deal with human waste like that were passed by the SAGE at the time, yeah. to ensure that everyone dealt with their human waste that way, it created an opportunity for entrepreneurs in Arizona to deal with human waste. And the guy who was actually dealing with our group described himself as the number one man in the number two business. <laughs> <laughs> the number one man in the number two business. Yeah. <laughs> That's a bit like the groom of the stool in the court of Henry VIII. It is, but you know, now it's an entrepreneurial opportunity in the same way, I suppose, that it was for Henry VIII's groom of the stool. It wasn't opportunity. He could yes. make money. He could get yep. earwigging yep. with Henry yep. VIII. But then on, on the other side of that, you've got this sense of latrine duty, which is where I want to talk about in a minute, yep. is, is a punishment. Yep. Mean, it's something yep. that everyone yep. desperately, yeah. desperately yeah, yeah, yeah. avoids,
0: to avoid. yeah. particularly with large groups of people. Yeah. yeah, I also want to show you this which is the way that the closed stool develops by the 19th century. So that's a wooden one. It's a wooden one. It also develops sort of almost like a commode. Well, it is a commode. Yes, with Um, a very kind of solid
2: lid. And that would close up. So I suppose, you know, maybe a fifth of the entire box opens up.
0: Yeah. Um, What's interesting is, Etymologically, the naming of it changes, and it's called the (laughs) Thunderbox. In the Victorian period.
2: That says something about the Victorian sense of humour. So where are you going to take us with toilets? Well, you're going to start by talking about butterflies. Butterflies? Yeah. Butterflies. (laughs) Butterflies toilets. Yeah, that would be weird. Uh, Let me just show you these wonderful
0: photographs. Here we
2: go. What's going on there?
0: Right, Okay. So what we have is... Five gentlemen sitting with their backs to us on what looks like a plank. Uh, it looks like a bench with their trousers down around their ankles. And they are going about their daily ablutions.
2: They are in a ruined landscape. In a ruined land. This looks like they're on the front World War World First War, World War One, It's one of those kind of classic examples of a northern French landscape from the First yeah. World War that you've all seen where the trees are just stumps, all of the lower branches have been ripped off and there are five men all going to the toilet on a bench. They're naked bottoms. Naked you know. bottoms all together. They don't seem to be talking to each other. They're pretending everyone else isn't there and I wonder if they even know they're being photographed. Now, where do the butterflies come in? The butterflies come in because it's all to do with latrines in the trenches in the First World War. And... There is an example of a um, wonderful First World War gallows humor, which you get a lot in the First World War and those those kind of printed pamphlets. Mm. And there's poetry about what's going on. And they described these things that floated around the air in the trenches as trench butterflies. butterflies. And what they were were little ripped pieces of used toilet paper, which blew down through the trenches from the latrine trenches, which were quite quite close by. And so all the idea of butterflies sort of winging their way sort of, you know, majestically around the trenches are actually (laughs) used toilet paper. Paper. I mean, it's as grim as it could possibly get. And I, I want to talk about just toilets in the trenches, but this really appealed to me. This way of calling them trench butterflies because it's <laughs> it reminded me of gallows humour and and actually particularly the history of gallows humour and why people find humour in the most horrific circumstances. And it's all to do with being able to laugh at evil and kind of prove that you've surmounted fear. Yeah. And the first War was a wonderful example of it, but there's a, there's a brilliant example, which I came across from the 19th century, when William Palmer, um, he was a, a, a serial poisoner. He was caught and he was, he was a proper 19th century baddie. And as he went to be hanged, he climbed up the gallows and he said to the executioner, Are you sure those are safe? (laughs) (laughs) I might hurt myself. I might hurt myself climbing up to the gallows. Anyway, moving back from gallows humour to the trenches, this idea, I think, of pollution is actually really interesting. So one of the problems with the trenches, you've got that many people and you have to work out what to do with all of the human excrement. Everyone's suffering from dysentery anyway. It's appalling. They dug latrines a respectable distance Away mm. from the main front-line trenches. But very often it was difficult and dangerous actually going to the latrine, so in practice a lot of people used buckets yep. where they were. So there's that kind of sense of pollution, and it really made me think about the pollution of the ground.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: The latrines were always temporary. So, so um, a section of the army would arrive, they would dig their own latrines, they'd use the latrines, and when those troops were replaced, they'd create new latrines. Often they were targeted by the enemy, though, which is interesting because they were in pits which looked like shell craters, and there was human movement. So yeah. when spotted from above, so when I mean going to the loo and a of the dream was a seriously, seriously dangerous thing to do. Yeah. But what I love about this is the idea of the pollution of the ground in terms of war, and we know now that...
0: You mean used as a tactic during... By no,
2: no, operation. no, as a result of the fighting. Right, right, So there's so much focus on human loss in the First World War, but if you actually think about what happened to thousands and thousands of kilometres, tens of thousands of kilometres square, the prime agricultural French ground in all of France, yeah, yeah. That, a lot of that now is polluted with copper, zinc, lead, mercury, yeah. um, you know, all of the, the human waste eventually got, yeah. got absorbed yeah. and that was fine, yeah. but it's the result of the... Over a billion rounds were actually fired, um, shells and gunfire in the First World War. And I think it's making people think now about the environmental impacts of major warfare in a way that no one's really given... Uh, consideration to. I mean, it's a similar problem with the sea because they dumped a lot of the unexploded munitions at sea. Mm. There are lots of unexploded munitions in northern France. There's a thing called the red zone, where even now you're not allowed to go walk around because Mm. you might die, Mm. um, because they're all under the ground. And I wonder whether the... Specific thinking about the environmental impact or coping with the environmental impact of a war is going to affect war planning in the future. Yes, it's all to do with policy, it's all to do with making sure there's a good infrastructure so that the people where there's been a war can govern themselves, look after themselves, they can have access to education mm, mm. and so on. But it's coping with the Environmental factors as well, which I think is going to become a really quite a significant political
0: factor in the future when wars yeah. happen. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you can see that with nuclear fallout as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's take a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: It's back to toilets, and let's take it back to sanitation, and let's think about it in terms of that. And I want to introduce here the first flush toilet. Could you describe that?
2: Yes. Um, what's that word there? I got it. a Privy imperfection. Privy imperfection. Uh, the cistern, the little washer, the waste pipe. This is a very, very early plumbing manual, it looks like, explaining exactly how this flush system
0: works. This is the godson mm. of Elizabeth I, Sir John Harrington. Oh so seriously. Who, who invented okay. the who invented saying, a little the little two windows at the back. Little seat. little you can always date it by windows. <laughs> <laughs> the first flush toilet, and apparently he had one of these installed at Richmond Palace. Uh, so it's Queen a basic years. idea, isn't it? There's a tank at the top, yep. full of water, and then
2: there's the place where you go to the loo, and then it all flushes out through a pipe
0: into... Into what a, looks a like sluice, a, sort of, a, sort of, a sluice, a stream. And the idea is that rather than having to empty it manually, you have a system that can just flush it. Yeah. And so it goes. I want to start thinking about how people in the past actually got rid of waste Hmm. you know and linking to your idea of pollution the problem is where you dump it yeah you know, and dumping it too near drinking water, mm-hmm. you know, is an incredible problem. And throughout history, we've sort of seen the development of sewerage systems, you know, pipes not only to sort of take drinking water around, but also to get rid of yeah. waste. Our own, you know, town of city of, of Exeter has those underground Roman... It does, which passages. are now a tourist yeah, attraction. Now a tourist. Yeah, the,
2: underground yeah, passages, isn't the, the underground passages. Yeah, the underground
0: passages, yeah. And I have here one of the earliest sewerage diagrams. Wow! From Christchurch Monastery, Canterbury. That's seriously old. So, eleven sixty-seven. Yeah, so hundreds of years earlier than what we were just looking at that Tudor flush toilet. So this is a sort of almost like a sort of three D drawing of the layout of the monastery, and what you can see, it's got a whole series of arrows over it. And these arrows... That's a poo map. Uh, it, it is, it is. <laughs> it's like the tube map <laughs> for London, it's, but, but, but in the 12th but, century, there are lots of kind of lines. But for waste. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so for the time, it is a highly sophisticated map that basically shows an elaborate system that separates running water, rain drainage and waste mm. so that you are basically going to have a healthy monastery. So they're thinking about how to get rid of human waste. And it's such an point. it's such an uh, a
2: early example, a 12th century, but um, yeah. it's quite professional and pretty impressive. That poo map, isn't it? Which suggests you know that's not the first example of someone no. thinking about no, no, it for no, a no, monastery. No. And monasteries no. are really interesting because they've got a bit of money, they've got this problem of lots of people living together, um, and they've got a bit of time, yeah. I suspect yeah. as well. So yeah. it doesn't surprise me that monasteries might have been the technologically base,
0: advanced, technologically in that way. Yeah. advanced. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Wonderful. Okay, well that's something. Oh, no, the no, no. No, no. Oh, no, 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 no. We have more. <laughs> Where else do we go? We started off with Henry VIII and the politics of the toilet. And I want to bring us sort of slightly more up to date. Right. I want us to bring us to the late 1970s in Northern Ireland and the dirty protest. Right. The dirty protest. This is a period of protest during the troubles by the provisional IRA and the Irish National Liberation Army. This is when you've got hunger strikes mm-hmm. going on for about five years, famously in the Mays prison. And from about March 1978 onwards, prisoners refused to leave their cells because they were being attacked by guards. So they asked for washing facilities, particularly showers, to be put in their cells. Mm-hmm. And these were refused. They had hand basins. And basically, they refused to to wash. They refused to empty their chamber pots. And instead, what they did was they smeared faeces all over the walls. This was reported worldwide. And famously, this was a dirty protest, a political statement that they were making about the way that they were being treated. And this was a standoff. You've got about 300 prisoners who were refusing to actually slop out, and instead were we're daubing faeces on the wall. And it's a way, you know, it is the politics of excrement, you know, and it's such a sort of visceral, angry statement to make. And I've got a quote here from one of the prisoners, Pat McGowan, who described conditions in a 1985 interview, where he says, there were times when you would vomit. There were times when you were so run down that you would lie for days and not do anything with the maggots crawling all over you. The rain would be coming in the window and you'd be lying there with the maggots all over the place. I mean, these were the most filthy conditions. Yeah. But what would happen, the guards, you know, would smash open the windows. They would squirt disinfectant. They would periodically take the prisoners out and they would send men in, in or officers in sort of rubber suits, plastic suits, some sort of protective clothing who would then clean the inside of the prisons. So it is about the particular kind of politics of intimacy, high politics of the toilet with Henry VIII. Well, and we've got sort of popular politics mm, of dirty protest
2: Yeah, here. and that's self-inflicted. I mean, what really makes me think about... There is the difference between French and British warships in the middle of the 18th century. There are a couple of wonderful examples of French sailors being captured and then having to serve on British warships. So you've got a thousand people, you know, maybe a bit more, at least 700 on warships. And cleanliness is a major issue. And the surviving French diaries, they are dumbstruck by the cleanliness of the British ships. And the contrast to that is when the British capture French warships, they are dumbstruck at the filth and the stench and the, the, the horrendous conditions that the sailors are actually enduring. Mm. A very vivid example, um, at the Battle of the Saints of the 1780s, where um, the British capture a French ship and all of the sailors are just writing about how the smell that comes when they, they open up the hatches to go down and find out what's actually you know, essentially the details of what they've managed to capture. And that ability, I think, for the French to carry on fighting but enduring squalor utterly undermined their sea power in the 18th century and a major part to play in, you know, the history of the American Revolution and also then following that, the history of the French Revolution and the cleanliness of the ships, you know, by contrast, was a key, key foundation in the success of British sea power throughout the 18th century. So um, there we go. Gosh, we've gone everywhere Where have we gone? We have gone from trench butterflies to 19th century poisoners, Henry VIII's toilets... Gong farmers. Gong farmers, uh, 12th century monks, and And dirty protests in Ireland in the 1970s. Goodness me, who knew that the history of the toilet
0: was so... Wide-ranging.
2: Yes, and actually, out of all of the podcasts we've done, I think this one has really opened up so many different... Passages. So many passages to explore. (laughs) I can't believe you said that. Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget you're the most important part of this podcast. Please do get in touch and let us know your ideas about the history of toilet. But that's it for now. Bye. Goodbye. If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at the TheHistoryMC.